This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello everyone. My name is Anmol. My name is Jonathan. We are a part of Codename F. F stands for freedom. We have been programming nine amazing events in the book festival as a part of Young Programmers. If some of the events are not sold out, you can get tickets on our website, edbookfest.co.uk. We are really happy to introduce David Williams. I love Mr. Cuban, the fact that anyone can, anyone of age can read his books. That will make you laugh out loud. David Williams' books have sold more than 25 million copies and are published in over 53 languages. Give a huge round of applause for David Williams, interviewed by Zeb Sones. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hello. Hello. Oh, leave me hanging. Hi. Hello. Hiya, 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 hiya. Hello, hello. Whoops. Okay. Lower your expectations. But thank you, thank you very much. And thank you to Zeb, who's a fantastic author himself. Just been enjoying his book, Gaspard the Fox, with thank my son, which is absolutely brilliant. And you're going to be asking me a few questions. I am, I am. And we're going to be taking some questions from you at the end. So all the way through the talk, have a really good think about any questions you'd like to ask David. And we have nine fantastic box sets of his books to give away at the end to anyone who asks a question. Uh, Many people, many grown-ups and and many children here will know you as an actor, a comedian, a cross-channel swimmer. Mm. Um, I think you say (laughs) cross-dresser, but... um, (laughs) Channel but, swimmer's um, good. What inspired you to first start writing children's stories? Well, I just had an idea for a story one day. I just thought, what would happen if a boy went to school dressed as a girl? I thought, how would his friends react? How would his family react? How would the teachers react? And this was 10 years ago when that particular topic was a, was a little more of a hot potato. You know, you've got quite, quite extreme opinions on, on, on something like that. And the story was going round and round in my head, and I thought... And this is a story about a child. This could make a good children's book. And uh, I really thought, well, I'll, I'll just do it for my own pleasure, really. Um, and it was a modest success, but I loved doing it. And that was 10 years ago. And since then, I'm starting to lose count, but I think I've written 19 books. So it's become a little more than a hobby. You had Bad Dad out last year, World's mm. Worst Children 3 came out this year. But what, how, what's the process of writing a book for children? How is that different from writing TV comedy? Well, um, the thing I noticed, because I, I used to do a, quite a rude comedy show called Little Britain. Have any of the children in here heard of this, this program? Any of you heard of it? Yes. Well, I blame the parents because, <laughs> let's be honest, they shouldn't be watching it. Um, And the thing when you're doing a comedy show, a sketch show, all you're trying to do is make people laugh. That's the whole purpose of a comedy sketch. When you're writing a book, I found there was so much more you could do because you could have scenes that were were, as much as you could have scenes that were funny, you could also have scenes that were moving. And those were the ones I really enjoyed writing. And I realised that it was something that, It was something I could do in some way or another. The boy in the dress has some tender moments, and as the books went on, Mr. Stink, others, Grandpa's Great Escape. There's lots of tender moments, and and I really thought, wow, there's so much more you can do in a book than you can in a comedy sketch. As for writing for kids, I've always felt I never really grew up anyway. Um, I'm still basically about 12 years old. Um, 
just a really the biggest, most unsightly 12-year-old you've ever seen. And, uh, and, so, and so I've never really felt like I've really had to change gear. And I think the mistake people often make when they're writing for children is they write something twee. And I don't think kids really want stories that are twee. I think they want the kind of stories that you've got to read uh, you know, un- under the duvet with a torch that feel a bit forbidden. My biggest influence was Roald Dahl, and his books are all feel a bit forbidden. The start of The Witches, I think the first page, he says, this book is about real witches, witches that kill children. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, it's so terrifying. And of course, there's probably people in this audience who've read that at six or eight or ten or whatever, and it uh, feels a bit forbidden. But he doesn't write down to children, and you don't either, and, and bad things happen, uh, mm. and there are some awful characters that you've created, which mm. must be tremendous fun as well. Mm. Um, it was very important to have villains, I think, because villains really make your story happen. Um, you know, if you think about Harry Potter, without Voldemort, he's just having a nice day at school. <laughs> because nothing would happen. And I realised as I, as I was writing more and more books how important it was to have a villain. And the first really terrible villain I had uh, was, I think, in Ratburger. And he was actually based a bit on someone who auditioned for Britain's Got Talent. I'll just tell you the story. So we were, we were sat there, and uh, I think in Blackpool, and a man came onto the stage, and he had these dark glasses, this mop of black hair. He sort of wheezed a bit, and he had these false teeth rattling in his mouth. And he came onto the stage, and he went, I know what you're thinking. They've dug up Roy Orbison. Well, <laughs> Strange, strange start. Uh, kids, you might not know Roy Orbison, but he was a much-loved and long-dead singer. And we said, what's your act going to be? And he went, I'm going to eat live cockroaches. <laughs> and true to his word, he brought out a brown paper bag that was moving around, and one by one, he started eating these live cockroaches. He went on to win the series that year and perform for the Queen at the Royal Variety Performance. No, he, he got buzzed off very quickly, but it got me thinking, a man who eats live cockroaches, what else might he do? Might he turn rats into burgers? Might he sell those burgers from a van? Um, might those dark glasses mean he's actually blind under there? I just created this whole imaginary world for him. And you know what the best part of it was? I did not have to pay him a penny. <laughs> So, um, and, and, and as I went on, once I'd had a kind of I, what I thought was an enjoyable villain, um, I really got off more and more on, on always having them in my books. And, and I really like writing The World's Worst Children because the kids are the villains in that. In a lot of children's books, the, the kids are the nice ones and the grown-ups are the horrible ones. In, this, in The World's Worst Children, it's unusual because they're all horrible children. Oh, what I love about it is, is cautionary tales. It's that classic, mm. you know, children getting their, you know, a bad character getting their comeuppance mm. at the end. Um, people, I mean, people say that, that real life is stranger than fiction, that character from Britain's Got Talent. Mm. But are any of your other characters based on real people that you know? Any of my characters based on real people? Well... The Boy in the Dress, a lot of people ask me if that book was autobiographical because I have an older sister. And when I was younger, my sister, she really wanted a younger sister, not a, not a younger brother. So she used to dress me up as a girl. We had this dressing up rocks and we had like a mauve bridesmaid's dress, um, this fur hat. It was the 70s. We wore fur. And um, she gave me a little handbag and a pair of heels. And she used to parade me up and down the street where we lived. 
The last time was about two or three years ago. And, uh, <laughs> as well as little. Um, and so the boy in the dress, to some extent, was me. Um, also, in The World's Worst Children, we have this character called Blubbering Bertha. Now, Blubbering Bertha, she likes to get her younger brother into trouble by... Uh, basically crying and pretending that her brothers hurt her. And that's exactly what my older sister used to do to me. She used to be lying on her bed in her bedroom as I was sat in my bedroom doing my homework. And she would lie on her bed as my mum and dad were downstairs and go, David, get off me, you're me! And then my dad would charge up the stairs and he'd give me a clip round the ear because you could hit children in those days. Sadly, <laughs> those days are past. And... Um, and, and, and she used to get me into trouble, so I got my revenge really about sort of 40 years later um, by writing her into the book. So what I'll say to you guys, are there some budding writers out there? Are there someone who'd like to be the next J.K. Rowling? I certainly would like to be the next J.K. Rowling. That would be good. Um, it's, uh, you know what, there are so many stories that I bet you can take from your own life, from your family's lives, from your friends' lives that you can turn into stories. I think we've got a picture of one of your characters, and mm. there we go. Well, you can see where they've come from. <laughs> now, this who, this who, is Boastful Barnabas. <laughs> and kids, you might not know who this person is. Who is it, David? But you may have to know who he is in the future, because his name is Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's a very down-to-earth politician. Um, he's really down with the kids. Um, he's travelled through time to be with us. And he was definitely inspiration for Boastful Barnabas, who's a boy at a very posh school, Eton, which is, I think, where Jacob Rees-Mogg went. And uh, he is very big-headed. He wants to win every single competition going. And his head gets bigger and bigger and bigger until he explodes. And we can only hope that that happens <laughs> in real life. <laughs> There's a character called Vain Valentine, who mm. I was reading today, who I love. He's, he's, a, he's a very vain uh, young man, and he wants all the girls in the school to chase him and kiss him for Valentine's Day. And it reminded me of my uh, teacher in primary school who was called, actually called Mrs. Lovely, but she wasn't lovely. She had really bad breath. And she had one tooth in the centre of the top that just waggled every time she said a, a f or a th. And I was dared to send her a Valentine's card. And she found out it was me and she chased me all around the school until she kissed me. So it, it brought back some quite painful memories, actually. It's quite, a, it's quite a disturbing story. Um, <laughs> but I had my first crush was my teacher. Um, her name was Mrs. Kineta. And she, her hair, she had hair like an Afghan hound sort of hanging down like this, and I bought her a, a box of matchmakers um, because I had a crush on her. And now, whenever I see an Afghan hound, I think of her. <laughs> Mrs. Kineta, where are you? Uh, do you have a favourite character from World's Worst Children? Um, well, I like them all in different ways. I mean, I'd love to read a little bit, if, if that's what you'd like. Absolutely. Um, so, at no extra cost to you, ladies and gentlemen... I'm going to read from The World's Worst Children, and I'm going to read out loud, in case you thought a bit boring just watching him read a book. Um, <laughs> my little joke. Um, now, kids, do you like rude stories? Yeah. Grown-ups, are the kids allowed a rude story? Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Fantastic. Well, this is a story about a little girl called Windy Mindy. And um, this book actually was the one 
that won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And um, Mindy has an incredible talent for breaking wind. And these are some of the things she calls it. Bubble bombs, toilet tunes, underburps, trouser toots, bench warmers, little Tommy squeakers, honkers, and bottom yodels. And I'm going to read you a part in the story where, basically, Windy Mindy has discovered she has this incredible talent for breaking wind. And she finds out that if she puts her bottom next to a tuba, which is a big brass instrument, she can actually play a tune. And her music teacher, Mr. Tinkle, gets very excited about this. And he decides to book her in to do a show at the Royal Albert Hall. And finally, the day came. Windy Mindy was to make a world debut at the Royal Albert Hall. In Mindy's vast dressing room backstage, there were some last-minute preparations. The little girl was delighted to devour as many of her special farty foods as she possibly could. Porridge, beans, mushy peas, cauliflower cheese, dried figs, cabbage and prune juice were all mixed together in a giant vat, which she then poured down her throat. To ensure she would have enough wind for the performance, she topped it off with a huge bottle of fizzy pop. Now Mindy's tummy was bubbling with air. Isn't it great? I think I'm going to explode, sir, she said. I would have enough wind to play for hours, she added, before excitedly clambering onto a trampoline. After bouncing up and down for over an hour, the food and drink in the girl's tummy was mixed together nicely or horribly, depending on how you look at it. Meanwhile, all the distinguished guests had been seated in the auditorium. The lights dimmed and a spotlight shone on the girl's music teacher, Mr. Tinkle, as he shuffled onto the huge stage of the Royal Albert Hall. Your Royal Highnesses, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Windy Mindy. Mindy bowed and placed the tuba behind her bottom, ready to blow her wind towards it. Gasp! The audience were scandalised. They'd never seen anything so rude. But immediately, sweet music filled the hall, and the audience were shocked into silence. After just a few notes, she had everyone entranced. They were all in the palm of her bottom. <laughs> However... After all that gassy food and fizzy pop, plus, of course, all that bouncing up and down on a trampoline, Mindy's wind was particularly fierce. The smell was so appalling, it actually burned the nostrils when it went up the nose. Needless to say, this is the point in the story where things began to go horribly wrong. Suddenly, the music teacher noticed that one by one, the rows of audience members were withering like dead flowers. The stink was hitting them like a tidal wave. In no time at all, the entire audience had passed out. Mr. Tinkle rushed onto the stage to make Mindy stop, but the wall of smell floored him in an instant, and he fell off the stage and plunged into a piano in the orchestra pit. Suddenly, Mindy realised that, as much as she wanted to, she just couldn't stop blowing off. Her bottom was buzzing way out of control, and her bubbly tummy was expanding at an alarming rate. Nothing could hold the gas back. Her bottom was about to go nuclear. <laughs> there was an eerie silence for a few seconds before. Mindy shot so much air out of her behind so unbelievably fast, she actually took off like a rocket. The gas propelled her and her tuba up, up, up into the air, and she smashed 
through the domed roof of the Royal Albert Hall. Mindy zoomed up through the starlit sky at lightning speed, heading straight for outer space. Up there on an international space station, the astronauts on board reported hearing some rather impressive free-form jazz. Thinking it might be alien life attempting to make contact, they put on their spacesuits and rushed outside, only to find themselves gazing open-mouthed in shock at a little girl hurtling past with a tuba behind her behind and a look of terrible panic on her face. That was the very last sighting of Windy Mindy. So what is the moral of this tale, I hear you ask? Well, it's that there is absolutely nothing funny about breaking wind which is why I would never write a story about it. Thank you. Thank you. Have you, have you, ever, been, have you ever had a story idea that uh, has been thought to be too rude by your publisher? Yes, all of them. Um, <laughs> but I tend to push back a bit because the great thing is there's so many children's stories that have already been published are out there that are really edgy and dangerous. We've mentioned Roald Dahl, but think about Grimm's Tales. You know, for example, at the end of Rat Burger, Bert falls into his own mincing machine and becomes a burger. And I remember a discussion about that and whether that was a bit too, you know, brutal for children. I would say, well, Hansel and Gretel, they pushed a witch into an oven and that's how they killed her. So, I mean, there's all these disturbing stories that came before and I, and I do believe that children like things to be edgy. The things, obviously, you've got to watch is, you know, language is a big one and, um, you know, you don't want to give children nightmares but I think children always like the thing that's for the older children, if you know what I mean. Or uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to watch rude comedy shows. I wanted to watch The Young Ones and Monty Python and Not Man Clock News, probably a lot more than I wanted to watch Cracker Jack. Um, and, so, and so I think you just got, you're just sort of treading a line, but you should always be almost just leaning over the line as much as you can. Yeah, scared in a, in a, in a comforted way, I yeah. suppose. Um, you've got a five-year-old son. Mm. Has being a father changed the way that you write? Uh, well, I suppose I'm just more in touch with, uh, you know, what kids find uh, funny or interesting, what they, what they find scary. I like to go into his school and read to his classmates. We've read your book, which was a big hit. And, um, and I'm also lucky enough to have a couple of nephews. And so, yeah, I find out what kind of things they're interested in. But at the same time, you've just got to work off your own imagination your own instincts as much as possible because you can't really guess what kids want to read next. You've just got to follow your instincts and do what you do. Um, do but do you get ideas from speaking to children? Yeah, as well? I do because I think children sometimes come up with images and ideas um, because I think they're so, especially young children, they're so all in the world of play all the time that they don't make a big distinction between the real world and the imaginary one. And that's obviously the horrible thing that, as a grown-up, you know, you, you, you tend to lose. And so, you know, my son just came up with some image about a door that opened onto a world of dinosaurs or something. Now, it's not a story I've written, but I just thought, wow, mm. that's incredible. I'm not sure I'd have come up with that myself because my mind won't work in the same way as his. So I think, yeah, if you're a children's author, it's a good idea, certainly to listen to kids. And if you're lucky enough to have kids in your life, um, 
to really be inspired by them. I remember I was talking to a group of children about foxes and animals, uh, uh, and they, it hadn't occurred to them that animals are naked, they're not wearing clothes, and they found this hilarious. And so <laughs> I've got animals dressing up in, in my next story, so thank you very much, Penzance. Um, uh, you get a lot of fan mail, yes. and you encourage children to, to write to you if they send a stamped addressed envelope, and you're very good at, at replying to them. Well, I think I am. There's always someone who says, I wrote you a letter a year ago, I never heard that. But, but I really do make an effort to, to write back to everybody. And, but I do often get some funny and memorable uh, letters, which I would love to share with you today. Yes. Um, these are genuine letters, ladies and gentlemen, that I have received. Um, this one is from a girl called Molly, aged eight, and she writes, Dear David Walliams, I love your books, but I got one book wasn't very good. <laughs> the name of the book was Billionaire Boy. It just wasn't that funny. I didn't really think it was that good, but I love your other books like Gangster Granny and Demon Dentist. I'm getting more of your books. Back to Billionaire Boy. <laughs> I didn't really think it was funny or that interesting. Thank you, Molly, aged eight. Well, can't please everybody. And this one, this one I got from an, from an older fan in the Philippines, a lady. Um, I love you on Britain's Got Talent. You look so handsome for me. Fantastic. I love you because of your age, your smile, your shape, in brackets, quite fat. <laughs> you know, she's a chubby chaser, what can I say? But I got another great letter a few years back. Um, it was from a girl, and she said, I'm writing to you because you're my second favourite author. My favourite author is J.K. Rowling, but my teacher said she'd be far too busy to reply. <laughs> So I'm writing to you. And um, I'm lucky enough to know Joe a little bit, so I've, I forwarded it on to her. And she said it reminds... She said it reminded her of the time she went into a school, you know, the, the, the greatest children's author of our age. Um, she went into a school and did a talk about the Harry Potter books, and all the children were given a piece of paper to say what they thought of her visit. And one of the children just wrote... She needs to brush her hair. Oh, there we are. <laughs> they had J.K. Rowling at her school, and that's all they could say. And who, who, who were your heroes when you were a child, and did you write letters and get responses? Well, I, um, I did like getting people's autographs, definitely. Um, obviously, I wrote to a, a particular um, DJ that can never be mentioned again, <laughs> um, because there was a you know, show on TV where... You know, dreams came come true and my dream unusually was to meet Brian Blessed um, who's a, a sort of rather big actor who was in a film I loved called Flash Gordon um, and so I wanted to meet Brian Blessed but it was not to be I did meet him many years later at a voiceover um, for Toilet Duck but um, I didn't meet him at the time. Um, but, yeah, I like getting people's autographs. I still get people's autographs, you know, if, if someone I really admire. Well, actually, Jim Broadbent was just backstage, and I just got him to sign a book because I love him. So I've got no shame in that. Um, and uh, I'm always starstruck by people, um, especially people, you know, you really admire. And if you meet people who you admire from your own childhood, I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. 
absolutely incredible. It's and a nice feeling when you get that warm flush. Yeah, you're, you're properly starstruck. And that's a kind of, you know, I only ever got into comedy because I was a fan of it. Um, and the same with, you know, actors and writers and everything, singers. I'm just, you know, totally in awe of anyone who's brilliant at what they do. I even, you know, I'm on Britain's Got Talent. It's an awful thing to say. But every time Simon Cowell steps in through him, I get a little bit starstruck. Oh, my God, it's Simon Cowell. Um, but he has a great way of basically heralding his arrival like he's royalty. Because he's always about seven hours late. And, and you, so you get these bulletins from the assistants... Okay, Simon's up and he's getting dressed, and then you get another one half an hour later. Simon is leaving his hotel room. You go, Simon's leaving the hotel. Simon's in the car. Simon's arrived at the venue. Uh, Simon's making his way up the steps, and then you literally get one. Simon's about to come through the door. <laughs> oh my God, he's here! He's here! He's here! And he walks in. And we we like to wind each other up um, quite a lot. And he's very competitive. And he has a son called Eric who's four years old, and I have a son called Alfred, who's five years old, and he once said to me, David, who do you think is better looking, my son or your son? <laughs> well, I went, well, my son, obviously, but the good thing is you're rich, so you can pay for your son to have plastic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and he immediately went to his partner, Lauren, Lauren, David just said that Eric needs plastic surgery. Um, so we spend most of the days winding each other up, and if ever... I'm writing a book, and I think, what would an evil villain do? All I need to think about is Simon Cowell. <laughs> You've written some quite um, uh, special, memorable characters, like the boy in the dress, um, Auntie Flip in, in Bad Dad, uh, who's very friendly with Reverend Judith. Um, why is it important to you to write those characters, which are not outsiders, but, but very different kind of... Well, leading characters. I suppose, I mean, I, I think, and I'm sure most of you agree, if not all of you agree, that difference is something to be celebrated. We all feel different in some way or another. It might be something to do with where we're from, our family situation, our religion, our appearance, or just something that we feel inside. And I think that difference is something to be celebrated because it would be really boring if we were all the same. And I was proud in Bad Dad that I'd, uh, you know, had a, I basically had a sort of love affair between two uh, you know, older women characters. And I went to my best friend uh, who I was at school with, Robin. He, he's gay and he, he got married to his partner and my son came and there were loads of other children there. And I thought it was wonderful because I thought this generation probably won't have any prejudices because it's just completely normal to them. And I remember thinking back to my own childhood and how, how you know, it was... It was so brutal, you know, gay was an insult. And I remember just thinking you know, how kind of awful that was for, for the kids at school who were gay and were obviously hiding it at the time. So I've always wanted to, you know, make my books as, I don't know, inclusive as possible and to celebrate difference in all its forms. Yes, and to not make it something strange. No, and it's not, I don't even meant, you know, there's no reason, it's just normal. There's no reason for Auntie Flip and the vicar not to be together. They're two ladies of a certain age who share interests, and so they should be together. And it's not, no one reacts to it in, in any kind of way that it's something out of the ordinary, and that's how it should be. It's just, you know, more and more, obviously, it's just 
part of normal life as it should be. Well, we're celebrating 10 years since the mm. publication of The Boy in the Dress. There are some fantastic uh, special editions of those books out with colour pictures by um, Tony Ross. Um, I've just been and work- Quentin Blake. And Quentin Blake. And Mr Stink. I've just been working with James Mayhew, and one of the things about working with an il- illustrator I found was that I didn't need to describe so much because I could let him do that. How closely do you get to work with your illustrators? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I do work closely with with them but I also I let them do what they do sometimes I say can we have an illustration here it's interesting to see what other people do a book that I love is George's Marvelous Medicine and you can see that Roald Dahl is relying on the illustrations a lot to tell the story because actually if he described everything that was in the pictures it would be repetitive so it's often interesting to see what other people did The, the genius of illustrators is they don't just illustrate the books they often choose the moments that need to be illustrated and pick almost sometimes the exact moment, like Quentin Blake told me that he was illustrating Matilda and Miss Trunchbull was like whacking someone on the head with a baton and he said the really great moment is just before it hits. You know, and I wouldn't know that. I'm not an illustrator. I don't have that sensibility. So you cannot underestimate how much a great illustrator brings to a book. And I don't know about you, but when I was going to the local library with my mum and dad every couple of weeks when I was a kid, or I even look at books now to buy for my son, I flick through and look at the illustrations and think, is this a good book, right? And the illustrations are the thing that tells you whether it is or not. Um, so I'm really lucky to have worked with Quentin a couple of times, who is obviously you know, a legendary figure. And Tony Ross is absolutely fantastic. And he's been... He's been uh, He's been illustrating all my books since then. So, so I'm very, very lucky because I think without them, I would not be as successful as I am. And, and do you have a favourite from these special editions? I thought you'd say a favourite illustrator. <laughs> um, I could ask you that. Uh, you know, the thing with Quentin is that you can always, you know, I always bore him with questions about Roald Dahl because I'm just obsessed with any detail about Roald Dahl. Um, but Tony worked with Roald Dahl too, as did lots of other people. So, so I love them both. Tony is a, is a lot of fun. Um, he really likes his red wine and his singing and carousing, and so we always have a really fun time together. Um, he's a really, really funny character. I'm sure. Have you ever seen Tony Ross do an event here? Well, do go if he's doing one because he's absolutely brilliant. And what were the children's books that, that you remember from your childhood that have really stuck with you? Apart, you've mentioned Roald Dahl. Well, I um, I wasn't that into reading uh, when I was a kid. I mean, I used to go to the local library with my parents. And I'd often pick a book, perhaps, about the solar system or dinosaurs or something. And I really wasn't into reading proper stories until I found a book that I really loved. So I was about 10 years old, and I went to the local library, and I found a book called Fifty Shades of Grey. And <laughs> I'm joking. Um, <laughs> a Stig of the Dump was a really big book for me. Do you know that book, yeah, Stig yeah, of the yeah, Dump? Yeah. Absolutely fantastic book. Really, really entertaining, and I think it was also a TV series at the time. I loved the John Wyndham books. He wrote books like Day of the Triffids, Midwich Cuckoos, uh, Village of the Dam. That's my family, the Midwich Cuckoos. Okay, yes. but he's a great writer. He's not celebrated as much as I think he should be, but he, he, I loved those you know, nightmarish science fiction books, and obviously Roald Dahl, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was my first, so that's always very special, but um, you can really work through all his books and there's something in there to enjoy. And, of course, as a grown-up, that doesn't stop me reading children's books because you can get through your childhood, you know, having never read, which I hadn't. I'd never read Peter Pan. I'd seen the film. 
never read it. Alice in Wonderland, again, I'd seen it on TV, but I'd never read the book. So I, I took pleasure in re reading some of those classics that I'd missed out on. Mm. And uh, you find time to read, do you? Because you're so busy. Um, yes, I like to read. I like to read a bit before I go to bed because it helps me dream. And I sometimes like to read a bit of poetry before I go to bed because I'm pretentious. <laughs> Would you like to hear David read again? Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Anyone not, not want to hear me read again? <laughs> no, okay. Right, fine. <laughs> Someone might not want to. Um, so this is from a book called Gangster Granny that uh, you may know already. And it's about a little boy called Ben who finds in his grandma's kitchen a biscuit tin. But it's not full of, full, full of biscuits. It's actually full of priceless jewels. And it turns out, this granny tells him, that, he, that she is an international jewel thief. She lays out all these jewels on her carpet and starts telling him how she stole each one. And at that moment, they realize that someone is spying on them. Ben's eyes darted towards the window. For a brief moment, he saw a dark figure peer through the dirty glass, then quickly disappear out of view. There was a man peering in at the window, said Ben. Oh, no, said Granny. I told you not to look. Shall I go out and see who it was? Oh, I bet it was my nosy neighbour, Mr Parker. He's a retired major, and now he runs the local neighbourhood watch group. What's neighbourhood watch? Oh, it's a group of local people who keep an eye out for burglars. But Mr Parker just uses it as an excuse to spy on everyone, the nosy old git. Is he suspicious about you? Oh, he's suspicious about everyone. We have to keep an eye out for him, young lad. The man is a menace. Ben went over to the window and peered out. He couldn't see anyone. Bring! Ben's heart nearly missed a beat. It was only the doorbell, but if they let Mr Parker inside, he would see all the evidence. He would see all the evidence the police would need to send Ben and his granny straight to prison. Don't answer it, said Ben, as he ran to the middle of the room and started stuffing all the jewels back in the tin as quickly as he could. What do you mean, don't answer it? He knows I'm at home. He just saw us through the window. You answer the door and I will hide the jewels. <laughs> Me? Yes, you. Hurry. Bring. This ring was more insistent. Mr Parker had left his finger on the buzzer for even longer. Ben took a deep breath and walked calmly through the hall to the front door. He opened it. Y -y 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 yes Can I help you? Mr. Parker put his foot inside the bungalow so the front door couldn't be closed on him. Who are you? He barked nasally. He had a very big nose, which made him seem even nosier than he was, and he already seemed extremely nosy. Because he had a big nose, he also had a very nasal voice which made everything he said, however serious, seem a little bit absurd. But his eyes shone red like a demon. I'm, 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 I'm Granny's friend, spluttered Ben. Why did I say that, he thought. In truth, he was in a terrible panic, and his tongue was running away with him. Friend, snarled Mr Parker, pushing open the front door. He was stronger than Ben and soon forced his way inside. I mean, I mean, a grandson, Mr Parker, sir. Why are you lying to me, said Mr Parker, taking several paces forward as Ben took several paces back. It was as if 
they were dancing the tango. I'm not lying, cried Ben. They reached the living room door. You, you can't go in there, yelled Ben, thinking of the jewels still scattered all over the carpet. Why not? Um, um, uh, because Granny is doing her naked yoga. <laughs> Sadly, the nosy neighbour was not convinced. Naked yoga, a likely story. I need to talk to your grandmother right away. Now get out of my way, you nasty little worm of a boy, he said as he shoved the boy aside and opened the living room door. Granny must have heard Ben through the door because when Mr Parker burst into the room, she was standing in a bra and knickers in tree pose. <laughs> <laughs> Mr Parker, do you mind? said Granny, in mock horror that he had seen her in a state of undress. There we are. Thank you. Thank you. You must have a lot of fun doing the audiobooks. I do. I do like doing the audiobooks. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And it's, it's, it's weird. I, I, so, I, I like to do them, actually, before the, 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 the book is out, because it's a great chance. You read everything out loud, and you, you often find little things, smaller things, but things you want to change. But no, it is fun, because obviously I am a performer as well, and I like doing the voices. And if you saw me writing these books, you might see me sat alone at my computer, jabbering to myself, pulling faces, doing voices, and thinking, well, he's finally lost the plot. Um, it's because I'm acting out all the characters as I go along, because that is what I, how I started as a writer. Because when you're writing for TV and you're writing to perform something, as me and Matt Lucas were in Little Britain, you're basically you know, acting everything out, and that's how you come up with, with stuff. So I still do that to this day. And it gives you an ear for language as well and what works and comic timing as well. Yeah, I just think it's important that all the characters have as distinctive voices as possible, that they, you know, even when you, when you read what they say, that, that, you know, the characters have just little patterns of speech perhaps, little, little, you know, little quirks in their language. Um, I just think it gives colour to the books. Well, we'll take some of your questions in just a moment. So, so think yes, hard a, about what good, you want to have ask. Have a good thing. But there is a little something that I need your help on, ladies and gentlemen, because there is a boy called Vaz, and Vaz is going on Mastermind, Junior Mastermind, and his specialist subject is me and my books. And so I thought it'd be really nice if we could record a little good luck message to Vaz. So I'm going to invite the cameraman uh, onto the stage now. Hello. And basically, he, he, I'm going to say, uh, Vaz, I've just got a message for you. I want to say good luck on Mastermind. And all these lovely people want to too. And then you're, you're, you have to say, good luck, Vaz. Can you do that all together? Should we have a practice? Good luck, Vaz. Okay, so it'll be nice for him. Okay. Um, can we do it? Hello, Vaz. It's David Walliams. I'm delighted that you've chosen me to be your special subject on Mastermind, and I wanted to say good luck. And these lovely people wanted to say good luck too. Good luck, Vaz! Thank you. Was there anyone, I was meant to ask before, is there anyone who didn't want to be on TV? <laughs> because if there is, we could do it again. Is there any, everyone's okay? No one's having an affair with somebody or something. <laughs> no. Okay, great. So it's now time 
it's now time. No, maybe. Um, it's now time for your questions, ladies and gentlemen. And just before we take your oh, questions, a little bit of housekeeping. Afterwards, David will be signing in the tent just next door. Give us a moment at the end for us to get there first. And you'll only be able to get your book signed if you have your ticket. So do keep tight hold of your ticket. There won't be very much time for David to write dedications, but you can take photographs. So, questions. Yes, and I'd like you to be in charge of, okay. of who gets chosen. And obviously, you know, let's not forget, we've got lovely young people at the back of the room. We've got some roving mics question. Here. But our first two questions are going to come from Unmol and Jonathan, who did a great job of introducing us at the beginning. Yes. Um, Where are you guys? They're down here. Hello. Unmol first. Hi. Hello, Michael Mopogel. Do I know Michael Morpurgo? Yes. He's a, he's a proper children's author. Um, I have met him a few times, and I did uh, an event with him, and he's brilliant. And I'm very in awe of him, because he's such a talent. And when I read his books, I want to give up, because I know I'll never be as good as him. Do you, is, do you, is there a follow-up question? No, do I know him? I do know him, yes. I do Jonathan. know him. Do you know him? You, you know him as well. We all know him, yes. You have a question? Which one of your books is, are you most proud of? Sorry? Which one of your books are you most proud of? Which one of my books am I most proud of? Well, I'd say it has to be Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> now, I let this lady get the credit, but I think we all know I wrote it. Um, my favourite book of mine... Well, <laughs> there's so many... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You want to think that then your new book is your best book. You don't want to think you're kind of going backwards and they're just getting worse and worse and worse. So I say my favourite book right now, because I'm just finishing it, is my new book. Um, do you want to know the title of it? Yes. Can you keep a secret? Yes. Okay. Well, it's an intrig- <laughs> you can't. It's an intriguing title. It's called The Ice Monster, and it's something quite different. From me, so well done, well done, guys. Thank you. We we'll give these guys box sets. We we'll give these guys box sets. So, so let's let's make our uh, roving microphones really work hard. So let's take a question from the back. There's a girl in an orange top. Put your hand back up. You've got Tommy written on your T-shirt. Is your granny a gangster? <laughs> Is my granny a gangster? Um, well, you know what? Uh, my granny's sadly not with us anymore, but. She was the inspiration for Gangster Granny. The reason was, I used to have to go and stay with her on a Friday or Saturday night when my parents were out doing something. And I used to think, oh, spending time with Granny, that's boring. We're going to play Scrabble and watch the snooker. And, you know, the whole house smells of cabbage. And And then I asked her one day about the Second World War because she'd lived through it in London during the time of the Blitz when Nazi bombs were raining down. On London, and ordinary people were, were unfortunately dying, and the people's houses were being blown up, and she had to hide in the underground system. And suddenly she became animated, and she had all these really exciting stories. And I thought, I, was, I felt guilty for thinking she was boring, because I'd always thought she was an old person, and forgot, of course, that all old people start off as young people. Um, and so, what I say to you, are you lucky enough to have grannies and granddads? You are. Well, look, all of you, all of you, ask your granny and granddads about their lives, about their adventures before you were born, because I bet they will inspire you. So, that very good question. You'll get a, a box set of books. You've already got one. Right, should we go up here next? Yeah, yeah let's, there's a girl in purple in the middle of the row. There you are. You know who you are. Put your hand back up. Yes. 
Will you write another book of the world's worst children, number four? Well, that's a good question. Um, I'm actually, and this is top, so you're getting all the exclusives today. I'm actually going to write a book called The World's Worst Teachers. <laughs> do we have any teachers in here today? We yes. do. Down or is here. there any of you who would like to nominate? You're a teacher. Would you stand up for us? What's your name? What's your name? Deborah, and are any of your pupils here today? I hope not, no. Right, OK. Do you have any bad traits as a teacher? Right, okay. Anybody want to nominate their teacher to be in the world's worst teachers? You do, so you tell me, what does your teacher do that's annoying? Or who are they? What's their name? Miss Simmons, and what does she do that's annoying? We haven't gone back to school yet, but she's very strict, I bet. We had a good one this morning about a teacher who sneezes on people, which I thought was oh. rather good. <laughs> You've got a suggestion, have you? For so, what does your teacher do? Well, um, she's um, she sweats a lot, and when she turns oh. around, all the sweat goes on all the pupils. Sweaty, sweaty Betty. What does she? What does what does your sweaty teacher teach? Um, she she's our actual teacher for all of our for everything. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean, you know, sweaty this. I mean, it's not her fault, is it? But, I mean, that's a good idea for a story. OK, let's, let's move on to let's another question. question. Uh, girl on the front row with two hands up, just here. Who did you base Mr Stink on? Who did I base Mr Stink on? Well, while I was writing Mr Stink, I was lucky enough to be performing in a play with an actor called Sir Michael Gaumont. Now, you may know him because he played Dumbledore in the Harry Potter movies after the passing of Richard Harris. So from the third film on, it's, it's Sir Michael Gambon. And he is not smelly in any way, but he's very, very eccentric, and he's got this wonderful, magical sense about him. He'll, he'll just turn up to work one evening, and he'll go, look, look what I've got here, look what I've got here. And he'll take, take out these guns out of his pocket go, look at that two 17th century pistols or something like that, just magic things like that all the time. So I had his voice all the time when I was writing the story. Um, but he didn't smell in any way, I want to make that clear. Um, but it really helped because I really heard his voice when I was writing the character. Who's next? We'll have one from the middle. There is a boy in a red T-shirt with the new... Yes, put your hand back up. That's it. We'll Do you want wait, to shout wait, out? Wait oh, no, the, the microphone's microphone. coming to you. Sorry. All right. OK. Who is your, your favourite contestant in Britain's Got Talent? Good question. Who is my favourite contestant on Britain's Got Talent? Well, two contestants uh, are performing here at the festival, and I saw them yesterday. Well, Lost Voice Guy, who won, and the runner-up, Robert White, who's another comedian. I went to see both of their shows yesterday, which I really, really enjoyed. But probably my favourite contestant and someone... Um, who I became good friends with afterwards, uh, is Jack Carroll. Now, Jack Carroll uh, is a comedian, and when he auditioned for the show, he was 14. He's got cerebral palsy, and he wears these glasses, got black hair, and he came onto the stage, and he's got, like, a walking frame, and he said, I know what you're thinking, Harry Potter's had a really bad Quidditch accident. <laughs> and it's so witty, you know, and I, I wanted to be a comedian from a young age, but at 14, I, I would never have been anywhere near 
as funny as he was, and I think he's my absolute favourite. Do you have a favourite? Yes, you've sort of drifted off. What, did you have a... <laughs> you don't have a favourite. You've never seen it. Who's your favourite judge? Yes! Yay. Thank you. The others are not here. You know, Simon Cowell got a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Imagine how angry that makes me feel. Not an OB, though, is it? Right, um, you, you, we've, got, we've got a few more, a few you, more. You were threatening to send a pickaxe, I mm. seem to remember. Mm. Uh, another one from the back, let's go to... Boy in the blue T-shirt who was hopping up and down. Keep hopping up and down so we can see you. That's it. Wait for the microphone. What kind of uh, food do you like that features in your books? That's an interesting one, isn't it? What kind of food do I like that features in my books? Well, I like... I like quite traditional food. I like things like fish and chips and shepherd's pie. If there's any ladies out there who are looking for a husband who are, <laughs> can cook those dishes, um, that's the way to my heart. Um, but I like writing about yucky foods as well. And when I was a kid, we had this very, very fierce dinner lady at my school. And her name was Mrs. Pratt. And if you criticised her food or she thought you were criticising her food, she would take out her ladle and go... I'll wrap your knuckles faster than you can say Jack Spratt. She was terrifying. And I sort of based the character of Mrs. Trafe in Billionaire Boy on her to some extent. Um, but I think I like yucky food more to write about. That's the, that's, the, that's the really fun food to write about. And so I often have lots of yucky, yucky foods. Because children are very fussy, aren't they, generally? Parents, you'll agree with me here. They're very fussy with their food. You're bouncing, do you need a toilet? Or have you got a question? <laughs> I think we have to go to this girl we'll here go before. To the, yes, there we but are. very good question, and we're getting some books what to you. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do I want to be when I grow up? Um, <laughs> I thought I was. I mean, I'm, I hope I don't grow anymore. Maybe this what way. What did you want to be? When what did I want to be when I was growing? Okay, that's a good question. Well, I really wanted to be um, James Bond. <laughs> or I mean, be not not play James Bond. Be James Bond. Be a spy or be a detective like Sherlock Holmes, or the other um, person I really wanted to be was Tarzan. So what I used to do was I used to strip down to my underwear, <laughs> my pants, you'll picture this, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> and I used to leap from, you know, the sofa to the armchair, going, <laughs> like that. And um, I still do that to this day. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to be a fictional character. What do you want to do when, when you're all grown up? You tell us. Be like you. Oh. Right, give her a book. Give her the yeah. book. <laughs> Very good, thank you. Thank you. The girl in the blue dress. Yes, you there with the long hair. Just wait for a microphone. Hi. Who was your favourite character in Bad Dad? Who was my favourite character in Bad Dad? Well, um, I liked writing the villains. I liked writing Mr. Big. I thought he was, he was quite a good character. Um, but I think I like the two old ladies the best. I like Flip, I think, and I, I had an auntie Flip. So I think she was a good character because she kind of annoyed... She annoys the kids, but she's ultimately a lovely person. Do you have a favourite character in that? I like Reverend Judith. You like Reverend Judith. I like Reverend Judith too. Well, thank was you. it fun writing the terrible poetry? Uh, I did... Uh, yeah, I did write... Because Auntie Flip, if anyone's read Bad Dad, has all this terrible poetry, and I can't write good poetry, so it came actually very naturally <laughs> to write terrible poetry. And it was fun. It was really fun. 
Okay, let's go this way, and we will have the boy in the blue top with the little white logo. Yes, keep your hand up. Wait for the microphone. What inspired you to write Bad Dad? What inspired me to write Bad Dad? Well, I really loved... Um, I love watching, like, gangster movies. Um, you probably have not seen them, but there's things like the long... Well, in fact, you don't watch them um, because they're very violent. But I used to like things like The Long Good Friday and Mona Lisa and, like, great British gangster films. And I thought, I really want to write something in that area. And I want to write, wanted to write a story about a good man who takes a bad decision to help his son because, I, you know, all the time, I guess, people do things which are like, you know, they maybe regret that they feel... They're just in some kind of moral quandary. They don't know the right thing to do. So I think that's what I was getting in Bad Dad. And also, you might have seen this film, or if you haven't, watch it soon because it's brilliant. The Italian Job. Have you ever heard of this film? As a film made in the 1960s, don't watch the, the remake, watch the one in the 60s, with Michael Caine, Sir Michael Caine. It's one of my favourite films. I used to watch it all the time with my dad. And it's all minis racing around Rome, robbing. So I, that's why I chose the mini in Bad Dad as a really a homage to The Italian Job. Well, this is our final question, final so question. please make it a good one. Let's oh, have someone from the front. This young lady here. Hello, we're getting the microphone to you. What inspired you to put Raj in all your books? Ah, this is a good question. Um, what inspired me to put Raj in my books? Well, Raj is based upon my real news agent, um, where I live in London, there really was a shop called Raj's News, and he had a famously messy shop. And he was always a fun character, because you'd go in and say, oh, where's the Tipex? And he said, have you checked under the Magnums? Um, <laughs> and, um, and I wrote about him in the first book, uh, in The Boy in the Dress, and he was a great character, because he was a grown-up, but he wasn't a teacher, he wasn't a parent, he was more like a friend to the kids. And I loved writing for him. And I thought, oh, well, I'll use him in Mr. Stink too. Then all of a sudden, a pattern was formed. And I just kept on writing him. And I, I loved it. Maybe I'm lazy. Maybe I need to come up with some more characters. But I love writing for Raj and putting him in all the stories. Now, look, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. You've been fantastic. But what I want you to do is join in thanking the fantastic Zeb. And do check out his book, Gasper the Fox. It's a brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, I'll dash up. I'll see you with the signing. Thank you. Which way is it? Anyone know which way? Big hand for David Williams. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.